This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are in a series called The Storytelling God. The Storytelling God. It is a series about the parables of the Bible. And uh, they're all found, or the ones we're studying, are all found in the Gospels, and they're told by Jesus. The Storytelling God, where uh, the, the uh, subtitle is Encountering Jesus Through His Parables. So we're studying these stories that Jesus told, these comparati- comparisons that he gave, which, uh, which are little accounts where he takes very familiar things from first century life in Palestine, and he tells them in a way that they reveal something about God. They reveal something about God's rule and reign, his kingdom, and they reveal something about his hearers. So in each case, the stories are not just moral tales. They're not sort of sermon illustrations where he's trying to fill out a point by telling a story that helps it make sense. Rather, they are revelations in themselves. When he tells the story, some people get it. It's like, a, it's like a riddle, or, or, or uh, some people get it if the Lord opens their heart and eyes. Other people don't even get them. They just seem like stories. And so we've been praying that as we look at these, the Lord would open all of our hearts and we would understand what he is teaching us. So today we're going to look at Luke 15, Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible in the chair in front of you, there should be a Bible uh, down below the chair in the basket. And this is on page 510. 510, page 510, Luke 15. Let's begin in verse 11. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs." And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring in his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, the truth of your mercy, the truth of your extravagant love. And we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear that you would reveal yourself to us in this story and in this account. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're jumping in, let me point out two resources that we have to help you on the, on the parables. Uh, we have a, next to the cafe over there, across from it, we have a resource center uh, with a couple of books, a few books available for each series. Uh, one is a book called The Storytelling God. This is a book that helps explain parables and explains what they are. So that would be one that you could get. And then I also want to recommend a highly, I can't highly recommend, I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's the only book I know that's on a single parable, uh, and it's called The Prodigal God by uh, Tim Keller, and it is a book about the prodigal son, and uh, it is a book uh, that is based, it explains the heart of the Christian faith probably as well as any book I've read. Uh, That's a high statement, but I think it does. It explains the heart of the Christian faith taken from this story. So those are both available, and they will help you if you want to learn more about this parable or about all the parables. Now, the parable we just read is very familiar to church folk. And so if you're new to the Bible, let me let you know you're really advantaged today. If you don't know much about the Bible, you've got an advantage on the church folk in the room. Because people who've read the Bible, who know the parables, this is arguably, this and the Good Samaritan are probably the two most popular parables. We've heard them so much. We've read them. We've heard sermons on them that we're very familiar with them. And the danger of familiarity is that we miss the sort of gotcha of the story. We, we say, oh yeah, I've already heard that one before. And so if it's, if it's new to you, good, that's good. You're going to be able to track new. It was certainly new to the people who heard it at first. And oftentimes this parable is understood, uh, I, I believe, wrongly. We, we understand it as sort of a sentimental tale, a, a sentimental tale of a comeback story. I mean, it's, it's the rags to riches account, or probably the riches to rags to riches again account of a guy. It's a story of some young guy who goes off and learns about life in the school of hard knocks. He goes and he gets battered up. He, he's the black sheep of the family, and he comes back, and we see the father welcome back the black sheep. We see him back in the family, and it's a heartwarming tale that we just think, oh, that is great. But the first hearers of this story, if they got it, the intended audience, the target audience for this story, when they heard it, their hearts were not warmed. They were infuriated by this story. 
This story is incredibly offensive to the first hearers of the story. And the reason we make it a romantic tale often of rags to riches, of the comeback kid, of the black sheep comes home and does well again after the school of hard knocks is because we take the story out of its context. Jesus is not telling a generic story. He's telling a story to a very specific group of people. Look back at verse 1. Chapter 15, verse 1 tells us, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes, those are religious leaders, the religious leaders grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Then he tells three parables. So here's the situation. The religious folk are doing what religious folk do, and they are assessing and judging and evaluating people. And they are incensed because the people that they view as outsiders, the people they view as really bad sinners, are being welcomed to Jesus. Jesus isn't just hanging out with regular people. He's not just skipping the Pharisee Bible study to go hang out with regular people. He's hanging out with notorious sinners. He's hanging out with the people that the religious elite despised. He's hanging out with tax collectors. A tax collector is not just a guy who works for the IRS. Now, you may not like somebody. You may not like the IRS, uh, but the IRS is your best friend compared to a tax collector in this society. The Jews were ruled by the Romans. So they were in their own land in Palestine, but they had this oppressive Roman rule. And so a tax collector was a guy that sold his own brother out, his own fellow Jew out, and went and worked for the government, and then would come take money from the Jewish people and give it to the government and take it by not just like fill out your 1040. They would shake people down. They would extort people. They would take, they would pressure and manipulate and require great sums of money out of people. So they were greedy. They were traitors. They were despised. And Jesus is having dinner with them. That's what incensed them. He says, they're not only coming to him in verse 1. It says that this man receives them and eats with them. Jesus, and eating wasn't just like, well, we happen to be at the same table, uh, you know, down at uh, at my work. They have a cafeteria where you're at the same table together. No, A, a meal was a sign of acceptance. A meal was a sign of closeness. A meal was a sign of, uh, of, of cre- sharing together, sharing life. A meal communicated so much more in this culture than it does in our fast food culture. And so this was very significant that Jesus is hanging out with people. If you read the Gospels, he's welcoming. When he would have a dinner with many people, he'd welcome prostitutes. But people who were sexually immoral, people that the religious elite, the Pharisees and scribes, would have nothing to do with. They wouldn't talk to them. They wouldn't interact with them. They are outsiders. And yet Jesus is drawn to them, and rather they are drawn to him as well. So they're incensed by this. And so to these angry religious curmudgeons, Jesus tells three stories. 
and they're all about something being lost. So the first one he tells, which we didn't read, but the first one he tells is about a shepherd. He loses a sheep. He has a hundred. One wanders off. He goes and gets the one. So the shepherd chases down the wandering sheep, and when he's found, it says that, in essence, all of heaven rejoices like that when one of these really bad sinners is brought to God. All of heaven rejoices. Then he says, there's this, there's this lady, the next story, this lady, she loses a coin and she looks all over for her coin. And finally she finds this coin after turning the house upside down. And Jesus says, she's so excited. That's like what the angels in heaven, that's, that's what they feel like when one of these outsiders meets God. So he tells them these two stories, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then this, they're so excited when they are found. Now, those two parables, they're just like the trailers that you see, the coming attractions before the featured film of the evening. Because then he goes into a very long story that starts off this way. There was a man who had two sons. And so now he's going to tell a story about how, how recovering what is lost is so celebratory. Because of that, some people have called this the parable of the lost son, the son who goes away. But it's not really a parable about a son, because the story starts off, the, a man had two sons. And we're going to see that there's two lost sons in the story. It's a story of recovering two lost sons. There's also these, the account of the father. The father in the story is merciful and loving. And while the parables generally have one central idea, one central theme, there are sometimes kind of sub-themes or sub-points that you see through the different characters. They're not allegories, yet each character kind of is representative. And in this situation, it doesn't take long to see, given the context, that the Father represents the heart of God, the heart of God the Father. The wandering son who goes off and parties away all that he has, he, he represents the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lepers, the people that are doing it wrong religiously, the people that are blowing it uh, with regard to uh, sort of perhaps serving God. I guess the leper wouldn't be in that category, but people who are, s- are sinful in their actions. And then the older brother, well, he represents the Pharisees, those who are judging those who have gone off, those who lack excitement that God is a God who goes out and finds the lost and brings them in. Ultimately, it's a story revealing the heart of God. Sometimes it's called the prodigal son. Prodigal doesn't mean wayward. We use it that way. We say, oh yeah, he's a prodigal. Uh, it doesn't mean wayward. Prodigal means uh, wasteful. And so he's called the prodigal son because he has gone out and wasted all that he has. It, prodigal, the word also means, uh, can also mean extravagant. And that's really the heart of the story. It's about extravagance, but it's not about a wasteful son. It's about an extravagant father. It's really the story of the prodigal father, the generous The Pharisees would say wasteful. He's wasteful to welcome the sinner back home like he does and throw a party. He is is reckless in his love. He is abandoned in his affection for his son. It's the story of a generous father, the account of the prodigal father, who, who, who actually goes after and welcomes two lost sons 
in the story. So let's look at a few of the details of the story. The story comes in two acts. Act number one is verses 11 through 24. Uh, Act number two, and that's that's the younger brother. Act number two is verses 25 through 32. There's so much here uh, that I'm going to cover this in two weeks. It'll be the only prodigal, I think. I mean, only uh, parable is what I meant to say. I think it'll be the only parable we cover in two weeks. Everything else will be covered in a sermon. But I'm going to cover this in two weeks. So we'll cover today the younger brother, and next week we'll cover the older brother. Uh, And if we had to pick a brother, I think the parable is more about the older brother than the younger brother. We always make it about the younger. I think it's more about the older, and we'll see that next week. But today, let's look at the younger brother. Let's look how it starts. The first act starts in verse 12. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. All of the original hearers would have been shocked at this. This is appalling disrespect. Appalling disrespect. Because what he's saying to his dad is, when you die, I get an inheritance. And I'm not waiting for you. I wish you were dead now. I don't care about you. I care about your stuff. I don't care about you personally. I want what you've got. And so I want it now. And uh, in this situation, in, in the Jewish culture, the older son would get twice what the younger siblings, younger sons would get. So he would have had a third of the inheritance. The older brother would have had two-thirds upon the father's death. And look what it says, verse 13. uh, I'm sorry, verse 12. Uh, He divided his property between them. So the father divides his property at this point because of the brash request. Father, give me, are the words. Because of the demanding request, the father actually divides his property. It's so interesting in the original language where it says, and he divided his property. The word for property is bios. It's where we get biology. Uh, It's life. He divided his life is what the father did. And the first hearers would have understood this because, see, he didn't just go down and, you know, cash in a few mutual funds, uh, empty out his 401k, um, you know, go down to the bank and take a third of his CDs and, you know, cash them and give them some. That's not what he did. Your, Your possession was your land. And land wasn't just sort of purchased. Land was passed through generations. Your land was your standing in the culture. What land you had, what estate you had, this was your spot. This was the Smith estate, the the Jones property. It would be known that way. You know, go down there, take a right at the Jones property, then go down to the left. You know, it was your standing in the community. And so he gives a third of his estate, which was mostly land likely. And the son then, a few days later, takes his property and goes and spends it in a foreign country. What's implied there? He takes the family, a third of the family estate, and liquidates it so that it's no longer in the family. And he just takes the proceeds to go and party. This is completely shameful. This society was built upon honor, and especially honoring parents and honoring elders. The young son, the, the wasteful son, was shaming his father publicly, was rejecting him, literally was saying, I wish you were dead. 
I don't care. I want what is mine. And everyone in the community would have been aware of this wasn't just some kind of, kind of kid sowing some oats. This wasn't just a young person. He's kind of wild. He, it was his freshman year in college. He'll grow out of it. It's not that kind of thing. This is an act of defiance where he says, I don't care about our ancestors. I don't care about our future. I don't care about what we've been provided in this estate. I don't care about my brother. I don't care about you. I care about me. Give me what's coming to me. And as soon as I get it, I'm not going to farm it. I'm not going to steward it. I'm not going to manage it. I'm going to get rid of it. It's out of the family. I want my money. And he takes off and he follows his passion. It says uh, he goes out, he, he squanders his property in reckless living. Like so many today, he believes that real life is found in chasing your own way. Real life is in sort of throwing off tradition, sort of getting rid of the oppressive uh, chains of morality and duty and, and responsibility and all of these kinds of things. It's about living free. It's about being indulgent. It's about being hedonistic. It's about life is short. You got to get all that you can. You only live once, so enjoy it now. Real life is about being un, you know, without having to give any answers to authority. It's, it's I'm unanswerable, I'm unaccountable, I'm free, I have the means and the resources to do whatever I want, and no one can stop me. It says he, he, he spent his family, it says property, but his family's inheritance, his family, he spent it in reckless living. He partied. We, we see at the end of the story what the older brother says is he spent it uh, on prostitutes. So he was just having the time of his life experiencing sexual freedom partying, enjoying himself, living like there is no tomorrow. But all parties come to an end. In the words of the theologian Willie Nelson, turn out the lights, the party's over. (laughs) The party ends, and it's time to shut down the lights, and a bad thing happens. There's a famine in the land, verse 14, and he began to be in need. So again, the original here is this next section is... If it's not appalling enough that he blows off the family tradition, the next part is, is nauseating to the initial hearers. Famine arose, so what he does is he hires himself out as a worker to a Gentile. So he works in this foreign land for a Gentile, but he doesn't just work for a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles, especially religious Jews, didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. Called them dogs. Didn't have anything to do with them. He not only works for a Gentile, he works for a Gentile pig farmer. Pigs were unclean animals. And so he goes out and he feeds the pigs. And, and ultimately, he gets to the place, verse 16, where he longs to be fed what they are eating. He gets to the lowest spot possible. It's not just all his friends are gone once, he, once he's out of money and he can't buy one more round for everybody at the bar. It's not like, oh, then they left him and, and that's the end of the story. No, he sinks so low that he is like a pig an unclean animal. He's, he is dreaming of the food they have. And, and then in, in an amazing, an amazing statement, he, he comes to himself. Verse 17 says, he, when he came to himself, he said, so he wakes up. 
the grace of God, it, this is how the grace of God works. He wakes him up and he sees the situation of his life. He comes to the end of himself and he's humbled. And, and, he, and he realizes, look, even the hired servants at my father's house are doing better than I'm doing. And he longs just to go back and work for his father. He is, he's broken. He realizes that he has been foolish. He realizes that he's been rebellious. He realizes that he is wasting his life. But he wonders if he could have a second chance. And so he, he says, look, my, my, my father's servants have more than enough to eat. And here I am perishing. So he says, verse 18, I'll rise, I'll go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What does he do? Well, he does what we do before a big meeting, especially if we're going to humble ourselves and it's really significant. He plans his speech. It's sincere. It's not just a speech. It's sincere. He plans what he's going to say to his father. And he plans to go back and say, I don't even want to be treated like a son after what I've done. I don't want to, you don't even have to welcome me into the family. Just let me work for you. Probably implied here is that then I can earn money back and I can make restitution. I can pay back all that I've done. If I can just work like a regular farmhand, uh, I'll, I'll pay back what you owe me. So he wants to probably earn his way back into the family, or at least earn his way back to calling it even. Even if he's always a hired servant, at least he doesn't owe his loving father. So he plants his speech, he goes home, and what happens in verse 20 is we see the father sees him. Verse 20, the father arose, I'm sorry, the son arose, came to his father, but while he was away a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the father, he sees him coming. The father takes off running to him. Now, this is a startling picture as well, because in this culture, men, especially older men, especially distinguished men, especially patriarchs over an estate would never run. Children ran. Maybe a woman would occasionally run, but no patriarch over an estate runs. And so here's the picture of this man lifting his robe, bearing his his bare legs, and sprinting to his son. It's a picture that would be undignified to the original hearers, but he's not worried about social custom. He's not worried about decorum. He's motivated and moved by the sight of his son. And so he runs to him. And when he gets there, the son starts his prepared speech, right? He's going to tell the speech that he was going to share. But before he can say anything, the father is embracing him. He is hugging him. He is kissing him all over. No doubt he's weeping. He's holding him. He's saying, my son, my son. And the son starts into the speech, verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father doesn't even let him get it out. He is already calling the servants to put together the party to celebrate. He interrupts him with this lavish grace. He says, I'm I'm not worthy to be your son. He wants to work his way back into the favor of the father. He wants to be a hired servant and I'll pay my way back. You don't owe me anything. You probably aren't even going to welcome me, but the father welcomes the one who deserves 
punishment. Two weeks ago when we had our grand opening, we did a whole message on grace, and we defined grace as uh, God's favor to those who deserve judgment, God's favor to those who deserve wrath, and this is a picture of it. This guy deserves to be expelled. He deserves to be rejected. He deserves at best to say, okay, you can be a hired hand and work and pay back what you owe, and then we'll talk. That's what he deserves. But what he gets is this blubbering, sobbing, wet, kissing, hugging, welcome, and now a party. He calls, he calls to, the, to the servants and he says, okay, look, we are going to celebrate. Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. Verse 23, kill the fattened calf and, and, and let's eat. Party's on. What's he doing here? Well, what he's doing is, first of all, he says, put the best robe on him. It's the father's robe. The father would have had the best robe in the house, and he's putting it on him, and he's saying, it's a symbol of you're back in the family. You're not a hired servant. You're wearing the fanciest garment we've got in the whole family. It's what the patriarch wears. It's what the dad wears. Put it on him. He puts a ring on his finger. This isn't just some kind of ring that's like, oh, that's a nice decoration. Let's, you know, welcome him back. Let's give him a piece of jewelry. Let's give some jewelry to the kid. That'd be a nice welcome home gift. No, this is likely the signet ring. The ring was the the ring of authority, which would have a seal with the family seal on it. So if you were doing business, you would put the ring, the signet ring into wax, uh, and that would do a seal. It would be like signing a contract or a letter or something like that. It was the sign of the family's authority. He's saying, you're back in. Not only are you wearing my jacket representing that you're part of my family, you're part of the family, it's fully restored. But you're also going to have delegated authority to have responsibility on the estate. You sold a third of it and wasted it, but what we got left, you're back in authority. And then he puts shoes on his feet. Uh, only free people had shoes. Slaves went barefoot. So he's saying, you're not going to be a servant. You're not a slave. You're a free person. You're in the family. You have authority. You are free. Welcome home. And there's no, there's just nothing else. The father just does not qualify this. The father does not build any fences. It is prodigal affection. It is extravagant mercy. It is indescribable love and kindness and welcome. He just doesn't, he he just doesn't qualify. He doesn't say you can come back, but we're going to talk about what happened. I'm sure they did talk, but that's not where he starts. He doesn't start and say, well, this better never happen again. He doesn't start with, do you know how upset your mother and I are? And what about your brother? He does not say, since you left, the whole community has shamed me. I'm I'm lower in everybody's eyes for what I did in indulging you and giving you that gift. Do you know what I did for you and what that cost me? None of that. None of this, this better never happen again. Not you're in on probation. There's nothing but we are going to celebrate. And we're going to celebrate with the whole community. The whole community which would have rejected this kid and would have likely rejected his father. The whole community is coming because I'm killing the fatted calf. The fatted calf is the animal that was fed special uh, so that, the, that, that it was used for a feast. We're having a feast and, and the brother and the dad... And the welcome home son, they're not going to eat that all. It's going to be a community feast. So everybody's going to come. The older son says that from the fields, he can hear dancing 
and music. Well, I guess he couldn't hear dancing. That'd be loud dancing. Uh, clogs, I don't know. But uh, so he can, he, he can hear music and dancing. So they're dancing, they're playing music, they're eating this. I mean, the, it's, it's hard for us to fathom this. The first hearers are like, what? are you kidding? What does it mean? It means that God lavishly loves sinners. Do you see this? God loves people that defy him. God loves people that rebel and resist against his good gifts and say, I don't care about you, God, or something far worse. I couldn't give a rip about you. I'm going to go do what I want to do. God loves that person. God loves the person who is wasteful. God loves the person who is independent, arrogant, and foolish. God loves the person who chases their own path. Even against all the training and all the warning, the person who goes and does the wrong thing. God loves the person who goes out and lives an immoral life, a drunken life, a disrespectful life. God loves the person that the religious folk would eschew and reject because their lives are uh, unacceptable, because their lives are against God's word. God loves them, and what he does is he runs and embraces them and throws a party for them without scolding them, without warning them, without condition. It is the broken, dirty pig-smelling, hungry, immoral, drunken rebel that crossed all the lines that receives a loving embrace and a party from the Father. That's what's happening in the story. So to the shock of all the religious folk who think this is unfair, this is not right, it is the explanation of why Jesus is having dinner with the tax collectors. It's the explanation of why Jesus is welcoming prostitutes. It's the, re- it's the reason because God, the Father heart of God, is to reach those who are lost far from him. And when you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father, the Scripture says. He's revealing the Father's heart. It's just more than we can get our heads around. And I want to ask you just two questions today as we wrap up from this story. One is, do you know this kind of love from the Father? Do you understand it intellectually? Are you gripped by it? Have you felt this? Have you felt this kind of love from God that even in the midst of your sins, in the midst of your errors, in the midst of your mess ups, in the midst of your foolishness, in the midst of your selfishness, that there is a father in heaven that lavishly loves you. We we get a glimpse of the father's heart here But if we read all the Gospels and read the whole story, we'll see that it's not just a father who welcomes home and just forgets about sin. It's a father who welcomes at great cost. Because it's a father who gave his own son, Jesus, as a substitute for us. Jesus comes to earth. He's the God-man, fully God, fully man. He lives a perfect life. He never sins. And yet he dies the death of of a criminal, of a sinner. And the Bible teaches that when Jesus died, he took our sins upon him. 
And he died in our place. He was innocent, but he died in our place. And anyone who would come and trust Jesus and believe in what he did for us on the cross can be reconciled to the Father, can be welcomed to the Father. The Father judged his own son for our sins. We have all sinned more than any of us imagine. A sin is any time we break God's word. We're called to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. We're called to love our neighbor just like we love ourselves. So any second of any day that we are not living for the glory of God and for love of God and love of others, we are sinning. Anytime we break his law. So we have all sinned um, uh, countless, innumerable times. Our hearts are, it's not just what we do, it's our hearts that are distant from him. And yet God punishes his own son for our sin. So as we read the whole gospels, we get a picture of the love of the father. It's not just that he welcomes us, but he welcomes us at the price of his own son who sacrificed for us. So anyone who would turn from our sin and would believe in Jesus and receive him are reconciled to the father. Jesus paid for it. And that's why when we come to the father in Christ, there's no groveling. There's no coming to pay him back. That's offensive. Even Jesus already paid for it. There's no, I'll be good enough. I'll be religious enough. I'll do enough stuff so that I win your affection. You can't even get your speech out about what all you're going to do as a new believer, about what all you're going to do to pay God back. You can't even start your speech about, I'll start going to church. I'll start praying. I'll stop lying. I'll start giving some money. You can't even get your speech out before the father's arms are all around you, welcoming you home because of what Christ did for you, not what you do for God. This is the love of God. And I wonder, do we know anything about that? Do you know any sense of the father running out, clothing you with the robe that says you're part of the family? You're not on the outside. You're not, one day you'll be welcome when you get good enough. One day when there's a better version of you, you'll be welcomed into the family. No, you come in your rags. You come filthy. You come messed up. And the father says, I'm welcoming you now. He's putting the family robe, a robe of righteousness on you. He is welcoming you. He's giving you responsibility in the family. Every one of us have a calling in the Lord. It's that signet ring that we're delegated a role and a responsibility in our family, in our church, in our job, in our school, in our neighborhood. We're given responsibilities and authority from the Lord to represent him and live for him. And it's not once you get good enough, it's you're my son now. You're my daughter now. Now go live responsibly bearing the signet ring representing me. And he puts shoes on our feet because we're not slaves. We're not slaves to the law trying to obey to be accepted. We're not slaves to the enemy anymore. He's freed us. We are free to walk with the Lord. Do you know anything about that? Do you know a God who, when you come promising all the stuff you will do, stops you and pulls out all the stops and throws a party because you are home? He is killing the fatted calf. He is, there is music playing. There is dancing. uh, And there is a huge party because you've come home. And you think, well, how could it mean that? That that makes it sound like I'm the center of the universe. No, God is the center of the universe. And that's the way he loves. The Lord wants to see his love in this. And when we know this kind of love, we we will forever be changed. 
you won't grow, I won't grow as a Christian if we don't know this kind of love. We will just perform duties to seek God's acceptance rather than receiving God's acceptance and then living faithfully according to his word because of his lavish love, not to win his love, not to pay him back, but because he's already loved us. Because he's already thrown a party because he's been extravagant with us. If you don't know, and I don't know, I struggle with this as well. If we don't really know this kind of love, then I want to encourage you in a couple of things. I want to encourage you just to read, to soak in this story. Read it over and over and over and over. Read it every day this week, because we're going to be talking about it next week, talk about the older brother. Read it every day. Maybe you should memorize it. Maybe you should get the audio Bible and put it, you know, put it on loop and just play it all day long. If you're new to the Bible, you can get a Bible app from your app store, or you can go to a website called um, Bible Gateway, BibleGateway.com, or you can get the U version, Y-O-U version, U version on an app on your phone, and you can do a search. Search the word Father, look at all the New Testament references to the Father, and just read everything in the Bible in the New Testament about the Father until you see his love until you experience his love. Read the book, The Prodigal God. You could read it in a day. Um, It's not a hard read. It's a compelling read. Read that book before next week. It's so good, you'll know everything I'm going to say because I'm pretty much just taking what he he says. It's so good, so a good explanation. But do whatever it takes to get the love of God in your mind. Repent of unbelief. If you don't believe the Lord loves you, turn from that. Turn and say, Lord, forgive me for believing untruths about you and help me see you as you are. I'm out of time, but i got to say this last thing. Do you know this kind of love? And secondly, do you know this kind of love for others? The story is aimed at religious folk who don't like people who aren't like them. So we'll talk about this all next week. The story is aimed at religious people who have categories of others and assume that they know how God would relate to those people. So we also want to pray that the Lord would give us his heart. That's what Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees. He's trying to tell them, this is God's heart to people. This is my heart so that they will have his heart as well. All people have certain others that we view as outside, that we think are apart, that are separate. So who is that for you? Who is that? Who is it that you look at and you look down on? What category of person, what type of person, what specific person is it that you find yourself judgmental towards? Whoever that person, whatever that group of people, the most vile group of people, the most rebellious, offensive person you know, you don't get the impact of the story until you visualize Jesus sitting down and having a meal with that person. Jesus loving that person, Jesus leading that person to repent of their sins and turn to Christ and believe in Jesus and receive a new life. And then God the Father welcoming that offensive person, God the Father welcoming them and throwing a party like you've never seen and inviting you to come celebrate as well. That's the impact of the story. So who is that for you? Do you know the love of the Father? It's way more radical than any of us imagined. And do we know that kind of love for others?
We want to be praying that God gives us that kind. That is our calling. It's to reach people that are unreachable. And the religious people say, that's an unreachable person. That's a bad, really bad, really notoriously bad kind of person. That's the person that is so far, it's that person that God is calling us to pray for, to love, to serve, to befriend, to share with the compassion of the Father, to share with them the love of God, to call them to repent from living in the pigsty. That's the picture where we all were. Get out of the pigsty and come back to the Father and be restored and come experience his favor. When we believe that gospel, and when we live that gospel, we'll attract those kind of people. If I look at my life, and there's no one in my life that represents real outsiders that are attracted to me that I know that I talk with, then I don't understand or I'm not fully living the gospel. I'm not saying all your friends have to, you know, uh, all your friends uh, have to be in prison or murder. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I am saying there has to be places in our life where there are people that the religious folk would say, wow, that's a real outsider, that they know me. And I know them, and they welcome me, and I welcome them. Not to say what you're doing is not a big deal, but to show them the love of the Father who calls them to come home. And the same is true for us as a church. This is a a burden for me. The same is true for us as a church. If we only attract folks like us, whatever us is, we're fairly eclectic, but uh, if we only attract people that fit a certain religious mindset, then we have to say, church, are we grace church? Or are we Pharisee church? Are we religious person church? Are we, if, if, if it's just preaching to the choir and we never touch anybody, never reach anybody, never connect anybody that's far from God, far, far from God, then we have to say, do we believe this gospel? Do we preach this gospel? Do we live this gospel? Because if we do, at some point, there will be some attraction for some people who are like those in this story. May we know the love of God and then turn with that and communicate that to others. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.